Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Kyle Lowry is leaving the Toronto Raptors as their greatest player in franchise history. What are the Raptors' plans moving forward? Well, we'll talk about that. Canadian women continue to make history at the Olympics this year. The women's soccer team kicked out the U.S. in the semifinals, ending their 20-year winning streak. Is this Canada's year for gold? And as the chatter of a federal election continue, Aaron O'Toole's own party is losing confidence in the leader. Former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Toronto Raptors uh, star guard Kyle Lowry apparently is headed to the Miami Heat. Associated Press reports that Lowry has agreed to a three-year deal with the Miami Heat, and uh, ESPN's Zach Lowe has the details. Kyle Lowry is a three-point shooting point guard. High volume, high accuracy, and he kind of plays that bob and weave game. He doesn't need the ball, and when he has it, he gets off of it fast. That is a perfect fit with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, two guys who operate in that mid-range area really well. They're going to be tough. They're going to be nasty. He's the perfect point guard for this team. Well, where does this leave the Raptors in all of this? So this as if, you know, we need more bad news for Raptors fans. Joining us to talk about the implications is uh, Donovan Bennett. Donovan, of course, is a host, writer, producer, and podcaster with Roger Sportsnet. Uh, Donovan, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Were you surprised by the news? Not really, to be honest. It was something that has been rumored for a while. And remember, if we go back to the trade deadline during this past season, many people thought Kyle Lowry would be moved on then, and the deals just weren't right to make sense for the Raptors at that point, given how much they value Kyle Lowry and how much they know he can impact winning. They decided to hold on, and they decided to, if Kyle Lowry is going to move on, give him the right to choose where that destination would be and to be collaborative and cooperative given how much he's done for the franchise and done for the front office specifically so not entirely surprised given he is getting advanced in age and you know getting another three years and 90 million dollars is good no matter what your age are but specifically yeah. in your point guard in your 30s and, and most specifically a chance to potentially win another title uh in you know his window of playing made sense for him personally from that standpoint, though, from his personal standpoint, though, Donovan, does this suggest that he doesn't think the Raptors are going to win anything anytime soon? Well, I don't think it's that they're going to win anything, but it's the re- being realistic on what is your championship window and when are you best positioned to make an optimal push at a championship. If you look at the core of the Raptors now with Pascal Siakam and OJ Ananobi and Fred Bleed, it's a very bright future. But their best basketball is probably still three, four years away, even though they're really good right now. Where you look at the Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler, who Kyle Lowry is very close with, you know, this is his opportunity to win uh, right now. They've brought in P.J. Tucker uh, in free agency. This is an opportunity to win right now. So the Heat are really primed and positioned over the next one to two years to push the likes of the Milwaukee Bucks, the Brooklyn Nets, in the East. We'll see what the Philadelphia 76ers do uh, as there's some speculation that they might trade Ben Simmons. And so the East has quietly gotten much stronger over the last year and a half. And so if you're doing some self-assessment, looking at your franchise, I think the Raptors' next championship window is probably a bit beyond when some of those franchises that I mentioned start to descend while the Raptors are still ascending. And Miami has a puncher's chance of getting to a finals uh, and potentially winning one right now with the addition of Kyle Lowry. Yeah, we'll talk about the Raptors uh, and the circumstance in a second, but let's get back to Miami. I'm glad you brought that up. This, When I heard about this last night, Donovan, it brought back memories to me of, anyway of the Chris Bosh move some years ago uh, when Miami thought this is the year and we need a couple of pieces, and Bosh was one of those. And that was a powerhouse, of course, that the Heat built in those days. Are, are we looking for a, a repeat of that in this upcoming season? Yeah, I would say same but different. Obviously, you know, it's a bit triggering for Raptors fans when one of their beloved players leaves and takes their talent south and mm-hmm. goes to Miami. And the fact that, quite honestly, the Raptors were stationed in Tampa this year and Kyle Lowry, who was an avid golfer, could get up and golf every day before and after practice might have been, uh, you know, something that nudged him in that direction as he looked forward to what the end of his career might be also you know no state income tax also is pretty helpful as well but this move is different because the heat have been in on Kyle Lowry both at the trade deadline but also the last two times he was a free agent they were the other team rumored 
to sign him. And then obviously we know he's come back to Toronto each time up until this time. So they've long been very interested in Kyle Lowry. And we talk about the super teams that we have. Russell Westbrook is going to the Lakers to join LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Obviously James Harden, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, all all stars on the Brooklyn Nets. This is different. The Heat are actually trying to build certainly a great team, but with people who fit a very specific role and who are great team players and great culture builders. You know, again, PJ Tucker is a guy who we saw what he did for the Milwaukee Bucks when he joined that franchise this offseason, giving them some toughness and some grit, something he's done, you know, in his short stint with the Raptors uh, a while back. Kyle Lowry, you know, he, he's more of a, a bulldog than anything else. And part of his greatness is his, the intangibles that he brings. And, you know, if you were to put him in the NBA combine right now, he wouldn't test through the roof. But you know that in tough times, he's going to figure out a way to either with his mind or his will make a winning basketball play. So they've assembled a group of, of pit bulls, to be honest. It's going to be really tough to score against them, and that's the ethos that not only Pat Riley loves, but Jimmy Butler, the star player. So I think they're going to really try and take on some of those highly touted superstar teams with a bunch of all-stars and see if they can be more assignment correct than them and and be more tough than them in, in some really trying spots and play better defense than them consistently. So not just a collection of stars like the Miami Heat where when Chris Boss joined Dwayne Wade, LeBron James. But if you're a Raptors fan, you don't really care. Again, you've lost a beloved son to the Miami Heat franchise. Especially because of the, uh, I guess, the, the history with uh, with Lowry in Toronto, though, Donovan. I mean, you know, he, he, let's face it, I mean, when he first came to the Raptors in 2012, he was a reluctant Raptor. I get the sense he really didn't want to be there. He didn't get along with anybody, with his teammates, with the coaching staff, certainly with management. Uh, but we watched him grow up as, as an athlete, didn't we? We did. And I think it's reluctant a great word to use because it was to the extent where he had in his mind, well, this is just a pit stop for me. Yeah. Go here, change you know my reputation, go somewhere else, that's where my career is going to be. He went as far as to not bother to put any of the phone numbers of his teammates in his phone. If they texted him, it would just show up as the number and not the contact name because he just was not checked in. He didn't think... He was going to be here for a long time, so why bother make relationships? And it was really a relationship with DeMar Rosen where they became great friends and, and really trusted confidants, but a, a relationship of respect with Masai Jury, who, let's remember, was trying to trade Kyle Lowry to the New York Knicks, and that was going to be his mm-hmm. next destination. That deal fell through because James Dolan, the owner of the Knicks, had been fleeced by Masai Jury many times before, the Andrea Bargnani trade being the most recent, Carmelo Anthony trade being the first when Masai was in Denver. And he yeah. said, no, I'm, I'm not going to fall for it once again. You're not going to put the banana in the tailpipe. I'm not doing a deal with Masai Jury. So that deal fell through. Luckily, sometimes it's the deals that you don't make that are the best ones. But Masai and Kalari had a heart to hide. And Masai said to Kal, listen, regardless of whether or not you play here, you need to change the perception of you in your career. You can make a lot of money and do great things for your family. But what you're doing now clearly isn't working because it hasn't worked at any of the stops that you've been in the NBA. So you have to be more of a professional. Kyle Lowry takes that honest advice and doesn't have hold a grudge, applies it. And years later, we're talking about a guy who's a leader in basically every statistical category in the franchise except for scoring, which would be DeRozan. He's an Olympian. He's an NBA champion, a six-time All-Star, an All-NBA third team, uh, not a future Hall of Famer. And, And so he really changed his perception, both internally and externally, uh, by taking some hard criticism and taking a look at himself. And it's sometimes the unlikeliest of players that end up being, you know, franchise leaders in, in the icons of the sport. And that's certainly what Lowry's been for the Raptors in basketball in Canada. He certainly was, and that's going to be his legacy. Uh, one blip in that, of course, was, was when Kawhi Leonard came on board a couple of years ago. You just mentioned about the friendship he developed with DeRozan. Uh, DeRozan was the guy leaving town, and, and Lowry didn't take kindly to that. And there was, a, I think, a concern there about just how he was going to respond to that, and especially because, you know, Kawhi, even through most of the season, although we, you know, they'd send him out from a lot of the games to try to keep him fresh for the playoffs, and we know that worked pretty well. But Lowry was seemingly, anyway, Donovan, uh, 
willing to take a back seat and say, okay, let let this guy in the spotlight, but I'm still going to be the leader on this team. Yeah, and that may have been Kyle Lowry's best season, except for the season after Kawhi left and Lowry really had to change roles again and take more of a leadership role. But he did take that news quite hard that DeMar had been traded. And obviously, being great friends with DeMar, you're upset when your friend is upset, but was able to get over it channel that emotion into his play, welcome Kawhi as a teammate, and not hold it against Kawhi, because Kawhi certainly didn't ask to be put in that situation, but quickly understood that Kawhi's level of greatness allowed the team to do things that they never could before and get to a level that was great. And again, get over the hump and help Kyle change the perception of his career. And, And when they needed him the most, game six, NBA Finals in Oracle, the best player on the floor was Kyle Lowry, and he came out of the gates dominating that game from the very beginning. But even as a culture setter, when there were, to be frank, two sets of rules, one for Kawhi and one for the rest of the team, Lowry was able to manage that locker room, manage the expectations, keep Kawhi accountable, and it's maybe that void of leadership that Kawhi has lacked in his transition to the L.A. Clippers, a team that is stocked full of talent but hasn't been able to reach the same heights that the Raptors were able to reach in that wonderful season. So his handling of the Kawhi Leonard situation, both personally but as a leader and a captain of the team, showed the real growth that Kyle made from when he came to Toronto to when they reached their championship level. Let's talk about the Raptors going forward then. Uh, the, by the way, we should inform our listeners, uh, this deal has not, should we say, con- been consummated because they have to wait till Friday because co- there's a uh, apparently kind of a, a, a moratorium put on trades at this time. But th- it's a deal the deal. The rumor we're hearing uh, that uh, going the other way, of course, uh, possibly is uh, Goran Dragic and uh, and possibly uh, Precious Ch- Chua uh, coming up here. Uh, are, are they going to play a role in, in the Raptors in the upcoming season? And the reason I'm asking this, Donovan, is oftentimes, and we've seen this happen, and not just when Kawhi left, but even before last year when they lost uh, Serge Ibaka and, and Gasol, both of them going to other teams, they never really replaced them, and they were weak down the middle. I mean, Siakam was consistently inconsistent last year, and that's a problem. Uh, are they looking at these guys as seat fillers, or are these guys going to be part of the long-term plan for the Raptors? Well, Precious Achua, I think, is part of the plan. You've got an athletic big. Uh, someone with some real growth potential. He's actually starred internationally with, with Team Nigeria uh, this summer in their upset win over the United States in exhibition play. Basketball fans will remember he had a great block on Kevin Durant in the playoffs uh, you know, earlier uh, in his career. And so he's someone who will be you know, part of the development plan that the Raptors have in terms of really growing and grooming their young talent and getting the best out of them. And he will give them some more size in the middle. In terms of Goran Dragic, he's got a player on a big contract who probably will be moved on and, and either bought out of that contract or, or traded to another team. Uh, Dallas sounds like the likely destination that Goran uh, will end up in a situation where you, you would prefer, quite frankly, the cap space uh, and that flexibility than Goran Dragic, the player, at this point. There's a couple things you could do with that cap space. You could use it now and agency. What's more likely, I suspect, is that they hold on to it, but then they'll be able to absorb another big contract, whether it's the trade deadline next year or in general, when the next star superstar is unhappy with their current lot in life and their current situation and looking to move. Dame Lillard, Ben Simmons, Bradley Beal potentially could be those names in the short or long term, but it's that flexibility that put this front office in the position to absorb a player like Kawhi Leonard when they made that move. So uh, I don't think Goran Dragic, when he's made part of the deal, will be here long-term. But Precious Achua is a name to watch because I think they see some real growth potential in his game. And he addresses that need that you mentioned of getting a little bit more bulk in the paint and a little bit more athleticism from the big men. You need that veteran leadership on any team, even if, when you're in a rebuilding and a growing stage, as the Raptors appear to be these days. Uh, Lowry was that guy, by all uh, accounts. Uh, does Freddie Van Vliet move into that role now? Yeah, he certainly does. And this, in many ways, 
becomes his team. He becomes the face of the team. And, you know, he really studied at the pupil, at the feet of Cal Lowry being his pupil. And, you know, since he was an undrafted rookie, he followed him everywhere and did pick his brain for advice to the point where Cal was quite annoyed. But then he kind of respected it because he was trying to learn and show him respect and not just, you know, eventually take his position. And they've become great friends. And, you know, it's, it's I guess, crazy to think about because he still seems like a young player and he's still getting better. But, you know, he's a, was a four-year college player. At this point in his career, Fred's 27, turning uh, 28 in February. You know, by the end of the season, he'll be 28. So he's in that prime where he's played enough, he's had enough experience, he can take on a leadership role. And even as a young player, you know, he led in his own way. He was so smart and, and so attuned to what the game plan was that even before he was playing a big role on the team, assistant coaches who may not have been adverse on the game plan would go to Fred to cross-reference things that they were thinking or things to make sure that they were correct. That's how much of a quick study he became as an NBA player. So now I think you know he's, he's had some quiet leadership moments with some of the louder members of the team. You mentioned Serge Ibaka, Marcus Sol, Kyle Lowry moving on over the last couple of seasons. You know, Fred Van Vliet now will assume more of a vocal leadership role and it'll be, you know, a nice extension to his evolution as a player and a big part of the franchise. Uh, well, it's uh, time to turn the page, I guess, and uh, we'll see just how this is going to roll out. Uh, Donovan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, the time today. Uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch uh, as these things develop and hopefully we can even get the guys back up on the side of the border for the upcoming season. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Same to you. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Donovan Bennett, who is host, writer, and producer, and podcaster with Roger Sportsnet, talking about the Kyle Lowry deal, who's moving on to the Miami Heat. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian women athletes who have just been doing a wonderful job in the pool and certainly on the soccer pitch. Uh, how many people got up at 4 o'clock yesterday morning to watch uh, Canada take on the U.S. In, in women's soccer at the Olympics? Uh, a few of us certainly did. Well, the uh, the women's uh, team continues to make history at the Olympics after they beat the USA uh, 1-0 yesterday. Global's Crystal Gamansing is reporting on this, and she explains that this is going to be Canada's first time playing for gold in soccer. Jesse Fleming likes the motto, play every game like it's your last. If this was the 23-year-old's final soccer moment, it was a player's dream come true. Fleming scores! Canada leads! The Americans are a force on the pitch, having won four gold medals in the last six Summer Olympics. But that one goal by Fleming was enough to take the game. A victory that made former teammate Kaylin Kyle emotional. They put blood, sweat, and tears into this. So I've been there, and I knew how much it meant for the bronze medal. I can't even imagine being in a gold medal final. Um, so I'm like, again, I wouldn't have missed the game for the world. Team captain Christine Sinclair is the world's leading goal scorer with 187 goals in international play. But she handed the ball to Fleming. Maybe she knew Fleming's foot was still hot after scoring a penalty shot against Brazil to help get Canada to the semifinals. And Jessie's young, but she's an experienced player. But Sink knows the program is going to need players like her to step up when Sink's not there anymore. Head coach Bev Priestman has said all along they were looking to change the color of their medals. One, two, three. The Canadians have two bronze medals from back-to-back Olympics. On our day, this team can can go all the way. That's what I, gen, I genuinely feel that. I think we have to show up to every game to do that, and it, it is difficult. Nobody, I keep saying to the players, nobody's going to hand us a medal. Getting by Sweden won't be easy, but no matter what, the Canadians have upgraded their medal. Should they win gold, it will be historic. The match goes Friday at 11 a.m. in Japan. That's 10 p.m. Eastern Thursday night in Canada. Crystal Gamansing, Global News, London. Exciting times, exciting pitch coming up uh, for the Canadian women's team. Joining us to talk about, uh, well, what happened and what's going to be happening going forward, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Oliver Platt, reporter and analyst for One Soccer. Oliver, uh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. How's it going? 
Uh, going very well. Uh, we're feeling pretty good. I know our listeners in our, our station in London, CFPL 980, are uh, swelled with pride right now to see Jesse Fleming doing so well on the national team. I, I guess the question a lot of people were asking going into that game, Oliver, was uh, can that women's team hold a grudge after 12 years from a game that they thought was taken away from them in the London Olympics? And I guess the short answer is yes. That seemed to be the motivation for them, at least many of them anyway. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think what was kind of nice about that victory and, and special about that victory was that you had a couple of players who were obviously there in 2012, Christine Sinclair, obviously the most notable uh, among them. And then you had some younger players like Jesse Fleming being, being one of those who, you know, watched that game. And even though it wasn't obviously the outcome at the time that, that we wanted in that particular game, that team still won a bronze medal and, and was, you know, Canada's first soccer medalist. And, Mm-hmm. inspired a lot of young girls to you know to want to be there right to want to be on that national team and so you have you know young kids like Jesse Fleming watching that game go on to become professionals themselves and I think they kind of they remembered it and they they kind of uh, were motivated by the idea of getting that victory over the US for for a player like Christine Sinclair who's 38 now in what could be her last Olympic Games right so there was there was a real connection, I think, to, to that 2012 game and, and to the past, and, and it all, all came together in, in a pretty special way. Well, it's, as you mentioned, still, I think, holds a place in a lot of our, our hearts, uh, the way that they rallied and, and we did win the bronze that year. But even the, the rallying cry that they were using going into the games was change the color. In other words, we, as you mentioned, we've won two consecutive bronze medals. It's time to change the color. They want silver, especially now. They want gold. Uh, so they're going to get one or the other as a result. Uh, that that's really seemed to be the theme for this whole club. As you mentioned, only two of them were on that team are still playing now. But uh, you know, we, the rest of us saw that, watched that, and were just as frustrated, I think, as they. And and that seemed to be what was on their minds. But you can't play the game that way. I mean, once you've got to live in the moment, and they certainly seemed to do that. That was a, a very very tough game, especially the first uh, ten or fifteen minutes. I thought Oliver, uh, where the Americans really took the play to Canada, and you wondered, is this going to be you know deja vu all over again? As they say. Yeah, and I, I think they've been very kind of ambitious, I would say, about about what they've wanted to achieve at this tournament. Because I think for a lot of people on the outside looking in, and I, I, I'll admit myself included, um, I thought a bronze medal at this tournament would be a great result. Um, you know, it's, it's been a, t- a tough couple of years for the women's national team. They didn't perform well at the last World Cup in, in 2019. They obviously went through a change of coach at the end of last year, and, and to give credit to that coach, Beth Priestman, she has always said it's, it's about changing the color of the medal, not just about winning any medal, which I think a lot of people would have seen as, as a big success given, as I said, the way the past couple of years have gone, but, but changing the color of it. And, you know, so to, to one, to do that at all, but secondly, to go through the United States in the semi final, who obviously, as we know, have been the, the dominant team in women's soccer for for so long now um not a lot of people would have seen that coming uh, a few months ago or a year ago and um i, I think they've really they've really started it is just the start because beth priestman's only had a few months in charge but she really has turned this team around in, in, in the what she's getting out of them bringing back some of the the kind of spirit and grit and mentality that was there under john herdman obviously won them those those two bronze medals in in 2012 and 2016 and it does look more like the Canada team of those two tournaments. So she, she's done an exceptional job, I, th- I think, to, to get them to this game and, um, you know, to go through the U.S., which a lot of people were, were maybe starting to think wasn't possible, having having not beaten them in, in about 20 years, I think, uh, before before the game l- last week. And we should mention that, you know, even though the U.S. seemed to dominate the first 15 or so minutes of, of the match, uh, there were no shots on goal. As a matter of fact, there were no shots on goal in the first half. That's, that's kind of that bend-but-don't-break uh, style that Canada plays. In other words, let them have their shot, but, but we're not going to give them anything. Yeah, defensively, in, in the two knockout games, they've been very good, right? Uh, shutouts in both games now against two quality opponents in in Brazil and the United States. Uh, they've had a, a centre-back in Vanessa Gilles step up pretty new to the national team wasn't expected to be a starter in this tournament and she's been absolutely outstanding and in both games uh, in both knockout games having come into the team for the knockout stage so that's always going to be i think canada's route to success they've worked very hard to improve the attack it didn't really come off for long periods against the u.s but they're a team that doesn't score a ton of goals and, and so any success that, that they have in this tournament was always going to be built on on keeping clean sheets on a regular basis, very being very solid defensively. Um, they, you know, they 
They were a little leaky at times during the group stage, which I think was concerning because you just didn't see this team being able to score two or three goals a game to to win matches. Uh, but it's really tightened up over the past two games, and and that's going to give them a real good chance to, to potentially win gold. Oliver, did the, the ch- coaching change, as you mentioned, relatively not that long ago? Did it change the character of this team? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the previous coach, Kenneth Heinemoller, nothing against him at all. I think he's a very experienced coach, but he was someone who was, you know, almost, uh, especially compared to John Herdman before him, a a bit calmer, a bit more low-key. And and I just think the team lost a bit of its its sense of purpose and and why it was doing things. And, And that's always been very important, I think, for the women's national team is, is the emotional aspect, the, the mental aspect, and John Herdman really keyed into that. And Beth Priestman is, is maybe not quite as animated as, as John in it. John is in a lot of ways, but they are, you know, their backgrounds are tied together. They're, they've worked together for a long time. Bev was, was one of John's assistants. But, you know, they go all the way back to the same hometown in England. So she's very, very much um, learned from him, I think, and, and cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. And she's been able to you know, tap back into to what really makes this team tick and what really motivates this team in a way that just seems to have been lost a little bit over the past couple of years. But that seemed to be the, the proper transition. You know, the fact that she was on the coaching staff previous to that, uh, she knew the team and the team knew her, so that would make the transition that much easier, I would think. Yeah, I think so, and, and it creates, you know, a, a kind of connection across the men's and women's teams, obviously with John being coach of the men's national team now, so mm-hmm. um, that, that's the kind of understanding and, and unity I think you want, and I, I think, you know, Bev Priestman went to England and, and was an assistant on, on the England women's national team staff. And, and that was, you know, that's done her a world of good. So I think getting outside of your comfort zone and, you know, not working with John Herdman for a period of time, you know, learning from other people. And, and as I say, kind of um, putting yourself outside your comfort zone a little bit is always a good thing. And, and she's come back, obviously, ready to, to be the head coach of a national team and, and has done a fantastic job so far. In the uh, the post game comments, uh, listening to what uh, Jesse Fleming had to say about the, the penalty kick course that won the game for them, uh, it was interesting to f- to hear that she, they asked her about you know how did you decide what to do, and she says I actually decided the night before uh, that if I got the opportunity, this is where I was going to shoot. And, and I'm always wondered about that, Oliver, when you see a penalty kick situation and whether it's Euro or whatever the tournament we're watching, uh, how do you make that decision? Do you read what the goalkeeper is doing and make a decision then? Uh, apparently not her. She knew that no matter what she was going to shoot, I guess, to that top corner, and thankfully it was successful. Were you surprised by her her, her attitude and, and the, the methodology there? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that's probably the best way to do it is to, you know, maybe you have a look in, in training the day before at the goalkeeper's tendencies and see if you can pick anything out. If you if you get a penalty or if you get to a penalty shootout at the end of the game, um, you try and do your homework and, and figure that out. But whatever the goalkeeper is doing, I, I think... You know, if, if if you strike your penalty well enough, and, and Jesse Fleming did, it was you know couldn't have been more in the corner. Mm-hmm. Then it's going to be very very difficult for the goalkeeper to save no matter what they do. So uh, I think having a plan and and you know knowing what you're going to do in advance, and then not kind of you know umming and ahhing in in the heat of the moment as to whether you should change your plan or what you'd initially intended to do is best. I think to to know going into a game if. If we get, to, if I get a penalty, or if we get to a penalty shootout at the end of the game, um, you know exactly what you're going to do. You stick to it. You practiced it in, in the lead up to the game, um, and and you know you can go in and, and hit the ball with confidence. When the the penalty was called and the, and the shot was awarded, uh, immediate speculation. Okay, who's going to take this? Christy Sinclair. You mentioned the Wiley veteran, the, the the leader on this team, spiritual leader as well as as is on the on the pitches. She obviously let you know this is the the, the player that's hot right now were you surprised by that to, to, to say that, that she was the one that was going to get the the, the opportunity yeah it's, it's been something that's been surprising for a while now because uh, you know back at the 2019 world cup canada got a penalty in, in a knockout game yeah. and uh, she handed it over to janine becky who obviously missed and then earlier in this tournament it was again becky who, who missed from the penalty spot so there's been, you know, a lot of surprise that, that Christine Sinclair hasn't been taking penalties. She did miss her penalty in the shootout against Brazil, so I don't know if it's something to do with, with her, her confidence from the spot. I, I sometimes get the feeling that, you know, you, you saw in the U.S. game, she went and picked up the ball when the penalty was awarded and gave it to Jesse Fleming. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe an aspect of it is, you know, she is trying to 
kind of pass the torch almost and, and have some of these young players step into step into these really big moments and, and take that pressure and be able to deal with it because the reality is she's not going to be around forever and she may not be around at you know a, a, another Olympic Games after this, right? So I think part of it is maybe a desire on her part to you know to, to give some of these younger players the big moments and, and give them a chance to be the heroes. Um, but but certainly it's it's been a surprise that you know the the top international goal scorer of all time, the talismanic player of this Canadian team, you would expect would be the one taking the penalties. But unfortunately, um, Jesse Fleming t- Jesse Fleming took it very very well against the U.S. The question we've always asked in this country is, is is the fact that this is such a popular sport in Canada now. I mean, you know, we've seen it in Hamilton. We've seen it in London. Uh, you know, baseball diamonds are being transferred into soccer pitches. You can't build enough soccer pitches for minor soccer in this country these days. We know that. You can't keep up with the, the desire and the need. But it never really translated into international success, uh, the exception being the women's team, who have been consistent uh, challengers time and time again. Uh, we're even starting to see the men's soccer team, the, the, you know, starting to, to move on to that next level. I know they're in the qualifying right now for, for the upcoming World Cup. And, uh, well, they lost to Mexico the other night, but uh, they seem to have, have turned a corner, too, with the, the coaching change that they've had there. Uh, are we starting to see the results, the fruits of, of that investment now in minor soccer, uh, to see the, the, both men's and women's teams start to improve on the national field? I think so. I, I think that's what's been exciting about this summer is, is it feels like it's kind of just the start rather than the peak of, of what's going to happen with Canadian soccer. Obviously, if if the women's team wins gold, then that is going to be a moment that will be that will be a peak, and then that will be difficult to top. But I think on both sides of the program, the hope is is that you know there's some talented young players on both sides. Particularly, the men's side is getting to a different level than it has been in the past. Obviously, the women have been successful for quite some time now. Um, but one of the reasons that, that John Herdman, the men's coach, decided to make that switch from the women's team to the men's team was that he felt, obviously, there there is more money in the men's game. There's a lot of money involved if the men were to qualify for, for a World Cup. And so he felt for both sides of the program, the men and the women, the way, the only way to take it to the next level and get the kind of investment that you need to take it to the next level would be the men qualifying for, for a World Cup, which obviously starts... Um, in September, they're going to have a chance to do that. So, um, yeah, both, both in terms of, as you said, the the number of kids who play the sport in this country, the way that's starting to transition into a lot of very talented young players on, on both sides, men's and women's, um, and this opportunity that the men's team has to, to go back to the World Cup for the first time since '86, and, and everything that would mean um, in terms of the amount of money that, that would come into the, the program again on both sides as a result of that, it, it, it is a, a time in Canadian soccer that feels like it could be, you know, it, it could change a lot of things forever if, if things pan out here. So, um, yeah, it's been quite the summer so far. The men, men had a fantastic Gold Cup, obviously just got knocked out by Mexico in the semifinals, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The women are now playing for gold. Um, World Cup qualifying for the men coming up in September. So but there's a lot to be excited about right now. There seemed to be always a missing step, though, especially when it came to the development on the on the men's side. Uh, many fine players, of course, would go and, many of them in scholarships and go down to the states or go and play in other parts of the world. Uh, but when they came back after the you know getting their degrees or whatever, there didn't seem to be any place. If you, if uh, there are professional leagues right now for that development, but uh, they wanted something homegrown. Have we have we addressed that? Is, is that gap been filled so that there is a continuation of the training and coaching that's so valuable here? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely starting to get filled in, I think. Um, you know, one big part of that has been the, the, the MLS teams, obviously. Yeah. In Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, they're starting to, they all have academies and they're starting to develop players on a regular basis now that play in their first team and, and uh, will be in contention for the national team. And, you know, the Canadian Premier League is obviously a massive step in that. So now you've got, again, a few more areas in the country, Halifax, Hamilton, Winnipeg, uh, Victoria, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa—they they're all, they all have professional clubs now. So again, there's an opportunity for local players who are, who are in the youth clubs there to aspire to be professional footballers in their own country. Um, there's an opportunity for guys who have been playing abroad, or uh, as you mentioned, at the collegiate level in the U.S., to come home and, and build professional careers in Canada. So I, I think we're starting to fill in the, the missing pieces of what's needed to, to really make sure that. You know, when we have talent anywhere in the country, um, firstly, that talent's going to be identified. 
And secondly, it's, it's going to have an opportunity to, to play in the professional game, to be training every day with professional coaches in a good environment and, and hopefully to be able to, to take their careers to you know the kind of level they need, which is normally Europe, um, to be able to, to play for the men's national team. So um, there, there's still still work to do on that front because obviously the CPL is only in its, in its third year of existence, but definitely things are starting to, to be plugged in there. Oliver, got about a minute left. I got to ask you this question. I was reading an analysis by uh, uh, one of your uh, compatriots uh, saying, "Look at that win against the U.S. That was their gold medal game. They may not have anything left in the tank uh, for the game coming up, uh, which is going to be ten o'clock Thursday, by the way, our time. Uh, it'd be actually Friday morning in in, in uh, Tokyo where they're playing. Uh, Sweden, a very worthy opponent. I, I, I don't get the sense that these guys uh, think that their work is 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 done here. That this uh, the coaching and the attitude here. I get the feeling that uh, that they'll get they're going to be ready for this next game. Yeah, I think this will be their, their toughest game so far. Um, obviously, you would have expected that to be the U.S., but the U.S., not to take anything away from Canada at all, but they just didn't have a good tournament. You know, they, they obviously lost to Sweden in, in the group stage. Um, they, you know, had to kind of limp past the Netherlands, although the Netherlands are a very good team in, in the quarterfinals. So um, the tournament was, was a big disappointment for the U.S., and Sweden have arguably been the outstanding team in the tournament so far. So... It's going to be another big test for Canada, um, but they are—they have put in against the U.S. and Brazil the kind of performance, again, as I said, very defensively solid that will give them a chance. Um, if they can do that, and if if they can get in a position where once again they only need one goal to win it, then they'll have a chance. Uh, what they can't do, I don't think, is is get in a real shootout with with a team like Sweden that is very talented. Always a pleasure to have you on the program and to get your perspective on this, Oliver. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks a lot. Have a nice day. You too. Oliver Platt, reporter and analyst for One Soccer, uh, with uh, Team Canada going for gold. And that'll be, as we mentioned, 10 o'clock Thursday evening, our time to watch the game. So uh, have a nap Thursday and stay up late and watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about the potential for a federal election. Now, that's a rumor that's been going on for quite some time probably since the last election, uh, with the minority liberal government in Ottawa these days. But the speculation is that, uh, well, as early as this week, the prime minister may actually announce an election date for the, uh, the next federal election. And a new survey now suggesting that Canada's federal parties are pulling relatively steady in terms of voter support, with just a few days to go, possibly before the election. Nicole Reese has details. The survey by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies says 29% of respondents would vote for the Liberals if an election were held today. That compared to 24% who said they would vote for the Conservatives, while 16% indicated they would cast their ballot for the NDP. All three numbers were relatively unchanged from two weeks ago, suggesting little movement as observers anticipate Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calling an election this month. Nicole Reese, the Canadian press. So is it going to happen this week? Is it going to happen next week? It seems almost inevitable that it's going to happen, but the question a lot of people are asking is how are the parties going to handle this? We know that the, the Liberals seem to have maintained a lead depending on which poll you're actually looking at right now, but there seems to be conservative problems right now and trouble in paradise, I guess. So Aaron O'Toole has only been in the job as the leader of that party for, well, I guess coming up on a year now in just a couple of days. Uh, and there's some speculation now that uh, a number of folks within the caucus are not really pleased with his leadership so far. Is that going to be a factor in the election? Joining us to talk about all of this is Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for that uh, newspaper chain for many, many years. Badger, great to have you back on the program. Uh, hope you're doing well these days. Thanks, Phil. Just fine. Uh, I'm vacating right this week in uh, Long Point. So in Excellent. Down here. Excellent. Well, you got a great week for it. Looks like the weather's going to be nice all weekend long. Uh, but uh, there are storm clouds in Ottawa these days with the possibility of an election. Uh, I've, I've heard rumors that the prime minister may actually make the call sometime this week. Not so sure if that's going to happen. But uh, there's, as I mentioned a second ago, almost a sense of inevitability. It's not a matter of if he's going to call when it's when, isn't it? Well, yeah, just before we get into it, I have to laugh at my former colleagues who always say, you're ready to call a snap election. How can it be a snap election when we've been talking about it for months now? Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I, it's it's going to happen. It, you you can tell by the way the liberals are throwing money that, my God, like I, I mean, uh, drunken sailors would be blushing. It's it's crazy. So you know when they start doing that, there's an election coming, and they've been spending money everywhere. So count on it. If not this week, 
then next week. That's about it. Let's talk about the the possibility here. Let's face it, if there's going to be a call, I, I know that Jagmeet Singh was already on record last week uh, while well, writing a letter to the newly admitted uh, Governor General saying if the Prime Minister asks you to dissolve Parliament, refuse, don't do that, uh, which is kind of a Hail Mary pass, I think, by Mr. Singh, because that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but d- does it does it indicate to us that, uh, that these other parties, especially the, the NDP and the Conservatives, uh, wouldn't really want to go to the polls right now and not feeling comfortable about going to the polls? I don't think either one of the opposition parties should feel comfortable going right now because I don't, you know, they, they really haven't, uh, you know, established themselves. I think, in my mind, that they haven't. And the conservatives, uh, are, I, I feel sorry for Aaron O'Toole, and I'll tell you why. Because being a leader of of uh, the conservative party is like trying to hurt cats, and it's it's darn near impossible. The conservatives won't get back in power again until they decide what they want to be. They've got so many factions, and factions are okay if you've got a strong leader, but I don't think the Instrument Tool is there yet. You know, somebody that can keep control of them. But right now, they don't know if they want to be right of center, uh, they want to be, you know, a real right wing po- uh, party, or they want to be a progressive conservative party. You know, I mean, they. They haven't got a clue, as far as I can see, and from the polls and from talking to conservative friends, it's it's really just hanging out there, and that's and that's not good for O'Toole. I mean, he hasn't, like you said in the beginning, that you know he's been on the job for just about a year. Well, that really doesn't it doesn't give you time to uh, to put your you know your thumbprint on the party and and tell people where you're going, what you want to do. And when, you know, and then when there's an election looming, you start to get the, you know, people saying, well, O'Toole's not our guy and he's not doing a very good job. And, and that's, that's often the case. That one might be a different story if it was a year from now, from now when he was able to establish himself. But I don't think he's had the opportunity to do that so far. Well, this uh, pandemic has really thrown a monkey wrench into just about everybody's works because it's really changed the game federally, hasn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, because everybody's everybody's focus, and rightly so, was on the pandemic and how we're going to get out of it and get people vaccinated. So there really wasn't that chance for any of the opposition parties because they had to agree to as many of the government things naturally uh, did to try and uh, get the, get the uh, country going, try and get people vaccinated, but. The point is, you know, um, right now they're 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 just kind of getting into their own, or were before the uh, before the house rose. So the liberals, I mean, liberals are they know how to win elections, and they know when people when the opposition is strong, when they're you know on their heels, and they know right now that the you know that the conservatives are on their heels. That could change during the campaign, as you often said. It could change in a dime. Mm-hmm. But right now, I I think that they know that there is a you know there's a problem in within in the party itself, and they uh, and they're taking advantage of it. But the ox the the explanation you're absolutely right. I mean, there's some some factions within the party. There are factions in every party. We we get that. But the excuse they often give is, well, it's a big tent. You know, we allow uh, difference of opinions, and and I, I can take that at face value, I suppose. But the, I think part of the concern here is that some of those voices in in those factions are. are I guess, trying to redefine what the party is or trying to maybe define the party. As you mentioned, maybe they don't even know what their identity is right now. And uh, it doesn't seem to be resonating with the public. I mean, there's an extreme right-wing section of this party. We all know that, but about them seemingly centered in, in Western Canada. And, you know, they, they talk about, you know, abortion rights. They talk about a number of other things. I know one of the key issues is that very abortion issue. Uh, you know, O'Toole has come out and said he's pro-choice. It's a woman's right to choose. Uh, that doesn't sit well with an, an awful lot of people in his caucus and certainly an awful lot of people uh, that want to support him in an election. And that will be their undoing. I mean, if if uh, I know that O'Toole has said that, and I, I believe he means it, but if you get... People get uh, an inkling that you're going to try and bring back uh, some kind of abortion bill. You know, that's it. 
in Canada, you know, that might sell in the States, but I'll tell you, it doesn't sell here to the, to the vast majority of people. You know, women believe they have a right to do whatever they want with their body, and they don't want to be talked, you know, told by a bunch of uh, white aging guys how to, what they should do. And that's, that will be, that'll be it. I mean, if that comes out, if the liberals are able to establish that's what the conservatives, you know, would do, or even hint that they would do, then it's over. Especially because, you know, any election you want to win a majority, and that's going to be the goal of, of all three parties, the main parties anyway. The problem the, the conservatives seem to have at this stage, though, are those splinter groups. Uh, and Maxime Bernier is maybe the classic example of that, you know, with with his party. Uh, he, but he broke out before the last election. and he did, No, they didn't win any seats, and he certainly didn't win a seat. But it's still a voice within that party, and there are a lot of people uh, that I think are having a little buyer's remorse saying, you know what, maybe we should have picked that guy instead of Andrew Scheer way back when, when they had that leadership. But there have been others uh, who have split it off. Uh, Jay Hill, who was in the uh, the Har- Harper government for quite some time, uh, he was a Reform Party guy, of course. Uh, the, the Maverick Party out in Alberta right now, and Saskatchewan seems to be getting some set. And they, they're not necessarily going to win seats, but they're taking support away from the Conservatives, and that's got to be disturbing, I would think, for the party. Well, it is. I mean, like I said, you know, trying to deal with all those factions, and then, you know, like you said, all parties have their factions, but the the Conservative Party seem to have more than their fair share of them, and and they go they go you know that pendulum swings right from the very right wing you know uh, religious right to you know to maybe you know center if you will for the Conservative Party with the, you know for the former progressive conservatives. And the former progressive conservatives want nothing to do with the, the loony right. They, and, you know, so they're, they're stuck. They don't know where, where they're going to, you know, place their vote, whether they vote or not. And that, that's where, that's where Mr. O'Toole finds it right now is trying, is trying to gather support from all sides without giving in to the, some of the crazy ideas that, uh, some of his, uh, supporters have. And that's that's tough. I'll tell you, that's that's really tough because he appealed to some of the during his campaign for leader. He appealed to some of that that right wing nonsense. And um, and now, you know, he's, he's trying to back off from that, whether he can do it in time. As we said, you know, the elections, you know, going to be called weeks away. So that it is a very, very rocky road for uh for mr o'toole if he can pull a rabbit out of the hat on this one boy he is an absolute magician by the way, I just mentioning about Jay Hill and, and Bernier with his People's Party and Jay Hill with his Maverick Party. Uh, there's rumors, and I'm sure you heard uh, during my time off, I, was, I continued to read what was happening in Ottawa, that Derek Sloan, uh, who has been a thorn in the side uh, to uh, Mr. Uh, O'Toole, is now talking about forming his own political party. They're playing into that that extreme element of the party, and, and I know that he wants to divorce himself from that, Richard, but at the same time, uh, you can't afford to give away votes and you can't afford to give away seats. I mean, there's talk now that they may actually lose seats in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And who would have thought that after the last election? Yeah, well, that's, you know, to to that point, like, what do you do? You know, what does O'Toole do? Does he, does he take a stand, you know, a firm stand and say, you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, you know, pro-abortion, I'm, you know, um, you know I, I believe in all the good things that most people in this country believe in, or does he give into that? And, he really can't because that they don't represent the majority of Canadians. You know, Derek Sloan does not, his ideas not, do not in any way represent the majority of, uh, of what Canadians think the country should be. So th- th- there you are. And there, there's the conundrum of trying to be a leader of a national party with all, with all these different groups trying to get him, you know, pushing and pulling one way or the other. And I don't think the NDP has that problem. And I don't, and certainly don't think the Liberals has that problem right now. They've certainly have in the past, but they don't have it right now. So where does he go? That's, uh, that is, uh, you know, $60,000 question. Well, and it's a matter of, of 
how much time he's going to have to try to do that. You can't turn the the you know, the ship around in, in, in a quick fashion, such as some people are suggesting here right now. But the problem, is, I guess it's an old political problem, really, isn't it, that if you don't define yourself, you're leaving the door open for the opposition to define you. And, and if that should happen, and we've seen that happen, well, with Stefan Dion, with Michael Ignatieff, where Stephen Harper and the conservatives told us what these guys were like. Whether it was true or not, it was inconsequential. In the absence of any information from those guys, we, the Canadian public just said, yeah, you know what, wrong guy, not happening. Uh, and O'Toole's got to be wondering, you know, is the same thing happening to me right now? What, what this party needs right now is a Harper-like character who, who sets the tone, says, this is where the ship's going. If you don't like it, get off. That's that's what it is. You know, you have to have a strong person, be a man or a woman, to take take the reins and say, this is where we're going, this is our policies, and this is what we hope that Canadians will buy into. And if you don't like it, start up your party, do whatever you want to, but get out. You know, that's that's a harsh, harsh approach, but it did work for him, and I really believe that's the only way that they're going to get something done with the Conservative Party. If you just tell those those folks that want to do whatever they want to do, some of the craziness, that, you know, this isn't a big tent party. You can get lost. Uh, story of the Toronto Star, I'm sure you saw, got about a minute left here, uh, talking about this very problem that O'Toole is facing these days. And and, and uh, both Stephanie Levitz and Andre Bouti are from the Ottawa Bureau from the Toronto Star are, are saying that their sources in Ottawa who want to remain uh, anonymous at this stage are saying that uh, there is almost a dump O'Toole movement there. Like they want to lose the election so they can get rid of him. That sounds pretty extreme. Is there any merit to that? Well, Bill, can you imagine who would say that? Like, did you even have the, the uh, you know, the future of the party? Do you even care about it by saying something like that? Yeah, we want to dump. You know, we want to lose so we can dump him. Well, we, you know, when the next person comes along, well, he's not exactly what we wanted, wanted either. So this is this is just going to perpetuate itself. It's ridiculous. In terms of a political party, anyone to come out and say, we want to lose. <laughs> it, just, it makes absolutely no political sense. Well, that's the, the life of politics, I guess. Uh, we'll be uh, watching to see just what's going to happen when that announcement's coming down and uh, what the implications are going to be, hopefully sometime in the next couple of days. At least that's what we're hearing anyway. Uh, Richard, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Stay well and enjoy the rest of your holiday. Okay, Bill, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years uh, for the Toronto Star News paper chain and uh, getting his opinions on what's going on and what could be happening. And uh, as we say, the speculation is is the Prime Minister may actually uh, make that announcement about a federal election maybe even this week. We'll certainly pass that on when the news makes itself and comes in front of us. And uh, we'll talk about the implications of that happening. And, of course, the pollsters are having a a heyday these days uh, trying to track just where the Canadian public is on this issue. And uh, that seems to be vacillating a little bit, too, uh, notwithstanding the fact that just about every one of those polls have the Liberals uh, with a lead. Is it enough for a majority? Well, that'll be one of the big questions. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.